Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. My name is Ian Johnston. Um, I write a little bit about films and have recently tried to write a film, but in comparison with our guest this afternoon, I think nobody can hold court. If you, I've just been going through his credits. Um, if you think about The Europeans, Heat and Dust, A Room with a View, Howard's End, one realises we're in the presence of probably the world's leading independent filmmaker. Will you welcome Ismail Merchant? Since this is a literary festival, we're here to talk a little bit about Ismail's book, which is Once Upon a Time, The Proprietor. And it's a wonderful behind-the-scenes story of making a film that he himself chose to direct, um, starring Jean Moreau. It showed in England, although it'll be out on video in a couple of months. Half the book is the making of it, and the other half is the script with some s- splendid photos. I suppose it's the plot is of Jean Moreau playing a writer who returns to Paris, so it's about a writer where she'd fled the Nazi occupation and she buys back a flat to try and buy back her past. Is that it? That's right. <coughs> it's a, um, a story which uh, came about... I mean, I have been admired Jeanne Moreau for a long time when I was a student in, in America and I saw her film Jules Régime and I said, what an extraordinary person and a wonderful actress and uh, kept a sort of a mental note. So years passed and we never met, you know, for one reason or the other, you know, she would, we would go to the same party, she would come to the same party because I was invited but I couldn't go to that party because I had to go be somewhere else. Um, and then finally, in a, during even the time when we were making room with a view in Florence, she was teaching a class there, uh, uh, a acting class, and we were staying in the same hotel, but we never met each other. And then finally, I had just made a film called In Custody from Anita Desai's novel uh, about an Urdu poet and the deterioration of the language Urdu in India. And I invited her to come and see the film and meet with Shashi Kapoor, the actor. So she came and uh, we met, you know, as if we had known each other for all our lives. Uh, And then I invited her uh, after the screening to a dinner and we started talking about it and she was very moved by the film and she said well I don't know much about Urdu or you know your language or the culture of India uh, but I certainly been affected by this film very very much and I said that well I hope that uh, we can work together and uh, this idea of the proprietor started with her and uh, I also wanted to, to uh, live in Paris because we had made Jefferson in Paris and Quartet and Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. So Paris has always attracted me, so I said that, well, I'll also find a place and, and live here. So I was taken to this apartment, which actually appears in the film. And uh, I took Jean Marot to see the apartment, which belonged to a very uh, famous designer, Madeleine Caston. And, uh, she felt very comfortable because Jean Cocteau had brought her to this apartment uh, some years earlier. 
And as you see that, you know, out of millions of apartments in Paris, we are there and she had already visited the place and it belonged to Madeleine Caston, whom she had met. So fate plays a very important part in this film and how people meet, you know, and how friendship is formed, uh, acceptance of lives from other continents, you know. So that's what, what happened and then the film started, you know, we started writing the film, uh, the proprietor, and then we started to shoot the film uh, and the entire story is written in this book, which uh, Ian has just mentioned. But I think that what, what is interesting in you know, talking about film, because there are so many surprises which people do not know. I mean, audiences see a film for two hours or hour and a half or two and a half hours, and they think that they've seen everything. But it isn't so. You know, there's much more you know, to see and learn and know. And that's what has happened over the past 35 years in our working whether it is in India or whether it is in England or whether it is in America. So that's how it is all. <laughs> I should say, um, in a little while, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions. And I've, I know there's a certain connection between Ismail and this neck of the woods because was Howard's End shot near here? That's right. How far yeah. away? Not very far, actually, just about half an hour from here. Yes, yeah. so who knows? The owner of the house might be here. <laughs> But reading this book, and it's wonderful to hear a director, in this instance, giving away uh, the secrets of how you get things done, uh, I would say one of, one of the watchwords is wing it. And let me describe a dilemma that Ismail has. He's also about to produce a film called Surviving Picasso. And Picasso's son, Claude Picasso, and Francoise Gillot are about to take out perhaps an injunction to stop him shooting it. In his film, he needs a sequence in Place de la Concorde, where the Nazis, I think, are about to leave. Is that their evacuation? And in Picasso, where you think an injunction may be on its way, you also need a similar scene. So what happens? <laughs> well, we, this was August, you know, where Paris is quite empty in August. And um, we, Claude Picasso was creating a lot of uh, uh, stir and you know giving out uh, interviews that how he will send the gendarmerie to stop us and put Jim and myself behind bars so we we wanted the sequence of both the occupation and the liberation of Paris uh, so m more so occupation for me and liberation was for for Picasso so we decided that we would do it in in Paris in one day, occupation and liberation at the same time. Very ambitious, you know. And uh, we named the, the, uh, the film was the proprietor to be shot. And we were also shooting Picasso at the same time. Uh, and it, it was quite, quite amazing because the whole Place de la Concorde was empty. And we had this German uh, um, army marching there. And people were watching and waving flags at them and all. And there was in Hotel Crillon a couple who had come from America for their honeymoon. And they were, they were there <laughs> watching the occupation of uh, Paris. And they, <laughs> they packed their bags, ran down, and said, well, we've been occupied again here. You know, we must leave this place <laughs> immediately. So they came down and they said, well, Bill and all of this, what's happening? He said, very frightened and upset and, you know, uh, said, no, it is a film that is being shot uh, here, and so just please relax, you know. <laughs> this is not the real occupation, you know. But it was stated in such a way, you know, because film is a make-believe world. 
and you have to do it absolutely uh, accurately and with proper care and you know and uh, as you know that merchant ivory is known for it so the occupation was done for uh, part of it for Myson, but mostly it was for Picasso and then the all the newspapers and television crew and all they were asking about the film and Jean Moreau was sitting in in New York listening to all this and seeing it on television CNN that they have shot this film for the proprietor and she asked me called me and said that I don't remember this scene at all, you know, what you were trying to do. I said, no, it was actually for Picasso. She said, ah, I see. <laughs> so we got that scene done without the gendarmerie coming and taking me into prison. <laughs> for people who may not know, the uh, demarcation on, on Merchant Ivory is that uh, Ismail Merchant, to, to all most intents and purposes, is the producer. James Ivory directs and... Uh, Ruth Power Jobvala uh, very often writes, but in the instance of the proprietor, you chose just to be the director. Why was that? Well, because Ruth was very busy with Picasso, and uh, and also uh, we wanted to do something very quick, uh, you know, because the availability of Jean Moreau and uh, and uh, uh, so we had this writer George Trow who had worked with us on Savages, so he wrote uh, co-wrote the the script. Uh, with a French writer, and we did the. But of course, you know, when you are working, whether you are doing independent, like when I did in custody from Anita Desai's novel, that she wrote the screenplay. It was Ruth and Jim were very much involved, because you know, working together with uh, uh, your two great collaborators, you have to bring them in, you know, all the time. So you get their advice and you know your the feedback, and uh, and they're always there, you know. So. It wasn't done without them. <laughs> Just to go back to some of the stories of the filming in this, it strikes me that every inch of the way uh, you are prepared uh, to not take no for an answer. I mean, in New York, the Museum of Modern Art wouldn't let you film there, and you dealt with that. In Central Park, um, you did a bit of gentle larceny. Can you tell us a little bit about these? <laughs> Directing <laughs> techniques. <laughs> and it's <a> producing techniques. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, as Ian you know, is very involved and has reviewed many of our films and has reviewed films of other directors over the years and producers, there aren't many good producers in cinema today. What one does is, you know, you make a budget and you spend the money. You never think about it as to how to save money. Even if your budget is there or it's made out, you like to spend it and forget it. But with us, or with me, I don't want to spend the money. I want to think about it as to how best you could achieve you know, what you are spending on the screen. And one instance was that we were filming a sequence in Central Park where I wanted a shot from the top, Jean Moreau walking in, sheep, in the sheep meadow. And um, we didn't we had a, what you call it, a, a, a bus, uh, equipment bus with us, and the cameraman with the camera and all couldn't stand on the roof of this bus because it was a made from uh, plaster, you know, the roof was. So he would have fallen through the roof. And while we were filming in that particular location, there was another film that was being made uh, with starring Arnold Schwarzenegger called The Eraser. And they had built a scaffolding with sort of, you know, two 
um, two ladders, huge ladders, and you know, you know, just perfect. So we, I <laughs> felt that it was a good opportunity to go and get the scaffolding and bring it and get our cameraman on the top of it and shoot the sequence. And the park, the sheep meadow, was shut because they were trying to uh, do something with the lawn and water and all. So we had to make Jean Maro climb over the over the fence and get her into the sheep meadow. And we brought this scaffolding and put our cameraman and the camera and all of that on the top of it. While we were ready to take the shot, arrived the, the production manager and the location manager and the teamsters and all of that for the Warner Brothers film, The Eraser. So they come and say that they looked at it and their uh, scaffolding had been hijacked, you know, somewhere. And then they looked at it and they saw us right there, you know, <laughs> with, the, with the scaffolding. So they came to us and they said that, listen, you know, uh, I, I got out of the uh, platform and I said, I'm sorry, you know, we just borrowed it, you know, you don't mind. I <laughs> <laughs> so they said, no, we certainly mind, you know, and uh, are you a union crew? And we said, yes. And he said, well, we want to see your union cards and all. So the two guys who were the union members, they had forgotten their cards that day. So they were going to bring a police and all kinds of things. I said, listen, we are making this film for Warner Brothers, Surviving Picasso. If you want to call the executive, I'll give you the number. You call him directly and find out, and my name is Ismail Merchant. Said, I don't care, he said, you know, we just, you can't do things like this. And, you know, so I said, well, listen, we are in the same film industry. We only have five million to spend. You have 75 million to spend. Don't you think it's generosity, you know, and charity? begins at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, you know, the guy, one of the members of the union came with a card and showed it to them and they agreed and said, well, look, please finish the thing quickly. And so we did and the shot was taken and it is beautiful in the film. So. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about hitting brick walls on the Picasso film, the Picasso estate said no Picassos in a movie. Now, I think most normal human beings would stop making a movie about Picasso if you can't show any Picassos in it, but you didn't. Well, we are not normal. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, the, the, the thing is that when you decide to make a film, and Picasso, it was not about his painting as such. It's about his, as a character, uh, as a personality, as someone who has contributed so much to the 20th century. And uh, his relationship with different people, you know, including his dealers, his mistresses, his wife, you know, all those things were very important. Of course, you know, he was a great artist, and he, his art is very important. But if people sort of shut the doors, you know, at you and say that you know, you can't do it, well, there is no reason why one can't create a certain kind of an ambiance and feeling. That's what we did. And I don't know how many have you seen Surviving Picasso. But if you see it, and if you have the opportunity, the film reflects a certain kind of his atelier, his feeling for art, what it is. All of those things were done and shown, and we have been very successful with that. It's because the people currently, Derek Jacobi is playing the part, making a film about Francis Bacon, I right. think have run up against the same stumbling block, haven't they? Absolutely, absolutely, because Alan Rydell from the Times was here to, to do that story. Yeah, and, and they've uh, gone ahead anyway. Yes, absolutely. But one should, because you know nobody can censor an artist, you know, from doing anything they want to, and particularly, I think the reputation of Merchant Ivory, you know, that we have 
we have done these films over and over again with sort of such fidelity and such a passion, you know, that calls for it that, you know, you are doing something which really appeals to you from the heart. You know, it's not some fictitious thing because you want to make a large amount of money as such. Yes, of course, commerce and art go together. You know, money, you know, of course, any author who writes a book wants to sell as many copies as, as he or she can. But the idea of, you know, you write with passion. You know, I mean, writers write a novel, and after that, the results come, the reviewers and the, the money and the acceptance from the audience. But I think in the very first instance, you don't think how much money you're going to make. You know, because I think it's the passion that drives you to make something, or to write something, or to paint something. You talked a bit there about the ambience of Picasso. Um, the ambience, to me, of Merchant Ivory films is something that has a vaguely English culture, yet um, Ruth was born in Cologne, Jim was born in Berkeley, California, and you were born in, in Bombay on, on Christmas Day? Right. Is that right. So you're not the most English trio in the world, are you? Well, but England, <laughs> is, uh, England is, a, is, is a country which has given a lot to the foreigners. Um, this is a country that has absorbed a lot of people from outside and has offered not only a monetary support, but from the point of view of culture and education is concerned. Ruth was educated here. She went to England, I went mean to the university here, got her master's. James Ivey has also, you know, uh, come to England many times before he even started the film. And uh, I was educated in a Jesuit school in Bombay and learned English you know, all my life. So England is not so far removed, you know, from our preoccupations in the sense that we, you know, we were brought in, uh, we learnt the language, we learnt about the people, you know. So it has been very much a part of our lives. So it, it, it gives you a kind of a, a feeling where you have to, if you are recreating an atmosphere or a place or a time, whether it is in India, you know, in our film, right from the householder to Shakespeare Wala and uh, to Heat and Dust or to the Deceivers and then coming here to England. So the same feeling, you know, about a place is very important. And I think whether you talk about a class system in England, you know, which is there, or you talk about a, a caste system in India, you know, and, or you talk about uh, color, thing in, in America, you yeah. know, it's all there. We are, our lives and our uh, connections and, you know, our day-to-day -day activities full of uh, these prejudices and, you know, but you have to go through it, you know, without being affected by it. Um, and I think Foster has written, you know, in his great novels, you know, only connect you know, so whether you're connecting with the English or the French or the Indians or the Chinese or the Americans, you're connecting with emotions and feelings, you know, and that is important. And, uh, you know, I know that many times people talk about it because we made, I mean, talk about why are you doing Foster? Why Foster? Well, why not Foster? He's such a great writer, you know, given so much to the world, you know, his experiences and what he has written, you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, is so true today. I mean, look at Harvard Zen. At the end of it, it is inherited by a person from a lower class, the nephew. You know. So there is a, a very specific meaning behind it. 
you know. He was like a seer who looked into it and who saw things. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'll say, my God, you know, if you look at a writer, E.M. Forster, how many writers have had 30 Academy Award nominations in the world? Please name one, and there isn't any, except Forster. And he has had nine Academy Award wins. So I mean, here it is, someone we have to be proud of. I said, please give, uh, a name a square after Forster, or a street after Forster, instead of criticizing it, you know? Something which is your own, which has given such pleasure to you and to the others, why not hail him, you know? But we have this tendency, and I'm talking about you and me together, you know, that we have a tendency of belittling people, bringing them down. I mean, this is a, perhaps a character of a particular place, you know, or a country. You know, I think we face the same thing in India, you know. Uh, so I think success and uh, success is not easily acceptable. Failures are. Because, you know, someone was talking to me about money. I said, we always talk about someone, how rich he is. But we never say how poor he is or she is. We never do that. So it's always the rich and the success and the power and the money. That is what is our mind, you know. All the time it is influenced by that. And that's the tragedy. So all of you who are here, we are making another film, so go and see. <laughs> Do you know what, in a strange way, culturally in England, people of my generation did see quite a few of those classic novels, uh, Jane Austen especially, on the television, broken up into six parts, shown very often on Sunday afternoon, um, and they were nice viewing, but they weren't... I can remember, I think, Alan Bedell as Mr. Darcy, but they weren't run away. Suddenly... Things have run away with your own a room with a view, maybe the, the, the point of demarcation, where instead of a respectful BBC series of episodes, something became an entity in its own right. It became cinema. Now, how did that translation take place, if I'm correct in assuming that it did? Well, I, I think what, what it is that people are tired of seeing blood and gore, car chase, special effects, and all of that, you know, and suddenly you find character, a romance, uh, a proper story, uh, emotional ties, you know. I mean, Mr. Emerson, if you look at Miss, I know that when we were trying to raise money for A Room with a View in, in Hollywood, we went to practically every studio you could think of. And there was one studio that said, yes, we would finance the picture, provided you change the character of Miss Bartlett and Mr. Emerson, eliminate those characters and let have Lucy Honeychurch be played by an American. Because that would really be marketable. So I said, well, listen, we're not talking about market right now. We're not talking about money right now. We're talking about E.M. Foster's novel with Miss Bartlett and Mr. Emerson. And you know what they have to say? Could you please read it? So I took the passage out from the script I had and I read it. You know, the thoughts of Emerson and Miss Bartlett, and Lucy Honeychurch. I mean, so we made the film in spite of, of, of the Hollywood studios, and it is a roaring success. And that again explains that it connected with the audience. It spoke to them, you know. It was full of humor. It had emotions. It had, uh, um, it had made, you know, a, a romantic connection with people. And you, you cannot forget that. And that's why, you know, the trend started, you know, today, if you look at it, there are many films that are being made, uh, which, again, you know, Jane Austen, 
uh, many of Jane Austen, you know, then also many of uh, Edith Wharton. Of course, we started with Henry James. So I think there is a hunger from the intelligent audience, you know, that they would go and see a film with story and character. I mean, like people who are sitting here in Hay today for 10 days, you know, you're all here to listen to the writers. That is the strength we have, is the writing, is the characters. That propels us to make television series or cinema or uh, theater or anything. But that is the basis of it. If you do not have that, then you have nothing. That's why Ruth Jabwala, as a writer, I mean, as a fiction writer, she has given us that strength, you know, to write characters and story. And then you move on, you know, and then you can make, because that is your foundation. I know there is a, uh, a thing which, when we celebrated 35 years, we brought out a poster. And the poster has a tree. I wish I had brought this poster to show it to you, but you know, never mind. Uh, it's a tree, and there are roots. And we say, we are proud of our roots. That is the headline. The tree and all the roots are the writers. And then it says, Merchant Ivory, Bombay, London, New York, and you know, Paris. And that's what it is. You know? And publishers, when they saw this ad appearing in the New York Times and elsewhere, they said, we never thought about this, that we have about 100 writers. But we never thought about it, because it is the writers. You can never forget. It's the writers who make everything. And thanks to them that we are here. We are sitting and talking and entertaining you, you know. So I think it's a, it's a great thing and a great feeling. Um, also, as well as writers, actors, and because of your um, limited budgets, you have had to search out actors that don't cost you $20 million a throw. And I was just going through your films this morning, and I found um, five little English names. Pierce Brosnan, Hugh Grant, Daniel Day-Lewis, Helena Bonham Carter, and Emma Thompson, all of whom got a bit of a start from you. Well, how did you spot them? Well, actually, you know, and Greta Skaki. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you, you know, Felicity Kendall. <laughs> yes. You're going to be trumping me all, all morning, all no, afternoon. But I, I think what you do is you, I mean, apart from the stars, you know, you also have to find new faces, new actors. You go to the theater, you go to uh, readings, you go to nightclubs, you go to one, you know, what call it a stand-in shows. Stand-up, yep. Sorry? Stand-up. Stand-up yep. shows. And there you are. You see these wonderful actors performing, giving their heart out, and then you say, well, why not this actor? You but know? How did you know Emma Thompson was going to go that far as she did for two, two films for you, just wonderfully. Well, actually, uh, after when we were casting for Harvard's End, it's such a wonderful part, Miss Schlegel, Margaret Schlegel. And we must have seen about, oh, about 25 actors. Um, and Emma did a reading. Huh? And then Emma met with James Ivory and wrote a wonderful letter. She said, dear Jim, I, uh, I so enjoyed meeting you and reading for the the part of Margaret Schlegel which comes once in a lifetime and whether I get it or not but I just want to tell you that if you decide to select me as Miss Schlegel I'll do everything I can to make you happy and that's what happened <laughs> so you see and same with I mean Hugh Grant I mean he was in Morris uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was in Room with the View Helena Bonham Carter 
And uh, along with, of course, Maggie Smith, and you have um, Vanessa Redgrave, and uh, Christopher Reeve, and um, Paul Newman, and Joanne Woodward, and Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, there's an actor called Bobby Sean Lennon. Uh, Kira Sedgwick, you know, another young actress, is not much known, but she's become a star now. So you give this opportunity because it is your duty to find people, you know, and it's like new directors, new writers, you know. It is our duty. You know, we have gotten so much from the cinema in this industry that it is our our duty to replenish it, you know. And I think that's one of the challenges of it, you know. You're very modest, but I mean, it takes an eye. I, I remember eating a meal once with Daniel Day-Lewis and congratulating him on some business in a room with a view. He's playing this slightly foppish vicar, and he's just walking, I think, through shot. Um, he's not the primary player, and he's got a cup of tea, and he's trying to remove a wasp from the cup of tea, and it's just a beautiful piece of cinema if you see it. And I said, very clever, Daniel, shows you a bright, and he said, actually, I stole it from Jacques Tati. <laughs> But what it made me think was that actually if an actor does that in a film, in an American film it would be out, but with Jim Ivory, he says very little, I believe. He lets the actor create just that. Is that so? Absolutely. I mean, the, it, was a, it was sort of a great blessing when you have actors who can create a part and add something of their own. That is really a great pleasure working with them. And... Uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is an exceptional actor. Mm. Uh, he has this, this, I mean, he just did uh, uh, My Beautiful Laundrette and immediately, you know, came to work with us in uh, Room with a View with two different parts completely. And I know, I remember the, the critics in America went berserk because they'd seen the film in the same week, uh, uh, My Beautiful Laundrette and A Room with a View. And I said, how can an actor play these two so different, you know, parts, you know? And then, uh, so, it's, it's, a, it's a bonus, you know. You have the best of the lines written by a writer, and then if it's not spoken well by an actor or thought out well, it's nothing. You know, it's like that wonderful scene in Room with a View between Maggie Smith and Judy Dench, you know, sitting in the field, peeling a, a pear, and the poppies are there, and they're both having a parasol, you know, and talking about the affair with somebody had had, a sort of a gossip thing, you know. It's absolutely brilliantly done, you know, and between both those actresses, you know. You could see, you can never forget things like that, you know, that happen, because the actors bring something which is very unique. And I think we are blessed that in our industry there are such actors like Maggie Smith and Vanessa Redgrave, Judy Dench, Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, and a whole range of them, you know, you can just name it. So, that's... Very much That's English right. names, though, as well. Um, just on the finance of things, Ismail, um, someone told me, it may be a rumor, and I stand to be publicly corrected, America needs an instant dollar. I mean, over the weekend in America, um, the Lost World, Jurassic Park, opened at 5,400 screens, and it needs to earn $25 million this weekend, or else it's a crime against humanity if they take it so seriously. But <laughs> films die, they wither on the vein because of that. America, there seems no patience at the moment in distribution. But somebody told me that A Room with a View took more money in its second decade of life than it did in its first. Is that true? Well, A Room with a View hasn't opened in the second decade as yet. Oh, which one no. would it have been, I wonder? Uh, not, not among our films, but it is actually 
when when the film opened like garden of kunji continu yes the, the seeker film that opened and uh, and did extremely well after something like 15 years That's in the same cinema i mean it did 10 times more money but i think room with you we are planning to re-release yes. the film it's 10 years since we had made so we hope that there will be an audience because you know there are p- people who are 10 years old have now become 20 years old or people who are 14 years old have become 24 so there'll be a great opportunity for the audience to see something that is a become almost a classic now so i think yes like i mean uh, for example the S- star wars trilogy you know yes. that has done phenomenally well of course that's a different kind of film we're talking about but today what ian is saying that you have to press the buttons to make 17 to 35 million dollars otherwise you're dead you know and that was the example we had here was curzon cinema which is a wonderful cinema in in in, in london that could play a film for from 6 months to a year you know and most of our films have played there for that long a time but today the same film will be playing in about 20 cinemas so the audience is dwindling you know they are going here and there and the the film that is a specialized film doesn't have the opportunity and chance to have a word of mouth see if the critics pans the film that's the end of it you know and then the it doesn't do as well because the audience of course follow the critics and critics are not always right so you follow the critics and then you never have the opportunity of going to see it but if it is in one cinema then you can go and make up your own mind about the film and that is important and i think again one depends on the audience to go and see a film irrespective of you know what the critics say sometimes there will be praise sometimes there'll be they'll pan you you know but i think the audience must make up its own mind you know particularly i think films coming from distinguished directors or writers or producers it's a very good point yes they don't go to work for no reason that's right actually talking of money there's a nice little story in this book about how i think the italian distributor of the room with view was reluctant to cough up some of the some of the box office takings so you paid him a visit <laughs> <laughs> well you know apart from just producing and then you make a film and the film is released we never forget it you know even today when shakespeare wala plays you know you get to the to the manager or the owner of the cinema and ask him to play the film because it is such a good and important film from our catalog so we went to uh, the film played very successfully in italy and was running for about 2 years 2 and a half years so i we never got the report from the distributor so i went to see him and he invited me to lunch you know how italians are so expensive they are closer to indians you know they're very expensive and they <laughs> call you for lunch and they'll give you everything and you know talk about tutto della nonna you know and wonderful pasta and you know sauces and things like that so we ate from something like 12:30 to 4:30 and then uh, i said now listen valerio uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said yes yes i said valerio where is the accounts you know and the money that is owed to us he said that uh, oh account i'm sending it to you i said no 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 valerio i wrote to you and i must have the accounts today and the cash today so he said that well you know italy has this uh, problem of uh, foreign exchange and we can't give you the money i said i like to take the cash you know i mean, don't mind at all i mean you could put it in a bag and i'll take it oh he said well, the banks are closed i said no no immediately the banks open from 5 to 7 so we can still go to the bank and collect the money so he started like so listen you have heard of mafias 
I have also, we also have mafias in India. And I had brought two Sikh bodyguards from the Indian embassy with a soul. <laughs> and I posted them outside the restaurant. And I said, well, if you come out, you'll see. So he said, Indian mafia? I said, yes. So he came out and put his head <laughs> and the swords were there. <laughs> sure enough, five to seven, we went to the bank and collected a wad of cash, you know, in this bag. And we came away happy. <laughs> See, you have to do all these things. So <laughs> if you want to be a producer, I mean, there are lessons to learn. <laughs> Cheap, though. Creativity doesn't stop behind the camera. But let's take a moment. I think there are two microphones here. Ismail has been making films. The cinema is, what, 100 years old? Ismail has been making films for a third of that time. He got his first Academy Award nomination in 1960 or 61. Are there any questions from people in the audience? Just raise a hand. There's immediately a man in the center. Would you like to wait just for the microphone? Did you see him? Hot day. Well, well, firstly, congratulations. Obviously, thank you from all of us for the, all the wonderful work you've done. Um, the, the, the feeling at the moment with, with the success of the English patients and the fact that I, I may be wrong and may mistake in my statistics like Ian, but um, is it true that perhaps I think 47 movies? American movies are coming out this summer which have a budget in excess of $60 million or something ridiculous. That, that finally, do you think there's a, a chance that the independent cinema of the world is actually is, is on the up? And I wonder what you feel about that. Is it, is it actually finally the end of so many uh, American blockbusters of $100 million, like Titanic, etc.? See, one, I, we don't have any objection about blockbusters and what they spend. But as long as there is an opportunity of independent cinema or independent films made with story and character, you know, as you've seen, in this last Oscar uh, competition and the Oscar win, it was the films that were praised and won the awards were the independent films. Shine is in Australia, uh, Baking the Waves, uh, Mike Lee's film. Fargo. I Fargo. Mm. I think... And even, you know, English Patient, you know, which was independently financed, you know, and the producer, Salt Zanz, who put up his own money, something like five to seven million dollars, because there was a gap of financing. That shows that the audience is ready and is there for an intelligent film. Audience is there for a romance. Audience is there for something you're saying, you know, in your film. And I think we cannot undermine an audience. We cannot. And people who undermine an audience are fools because they all say, well, give them this rubbish, you know, and they'll go and see it. No. Apart from the rubbish, there is something else. And people will go and support and see those films. And it is very rewarding for us and very heart heartwarming that things like that are happening and will continue to happen, you know. And I'm, I'm just uh, grateful that it's people like you again, you know, who read and who want to see films. Or if there is a film that has been successful, then people will go and buy the book and read it. Like E.M. Foster never sold in his lifetime 50,000 or 100,000 copies, sold 4.5 million copies, you know, in Passage to India, uh, Morris, Harvard's End, and A Room with the View. So there it is. It's a great reward, isn't it? We are not only promoting good cinema, but we are promoting literature and reading, the habit to read. That is important.
like Herodotus, doing better business now than he ever did before. Um, there's a lady in the front row, if we could bring a microphone down. The gentleman's question is a good one because the, the, the feeling in Hollywood at the moment is that this summer will cause an implosion. Apparently, more money has been spent on these blockbusters this summer than can possibly be recouped. So all the studios are looking at each other, wondering which one of us is the one that's going to explode, or which two of us, maybe. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, Mike, can we use the other mic? I think Schwarzenegger's been at that mic. <laughs> My question is that you have brought people like E.M. Forster to a much wider audience, and you say that your roots are your authors. Are there any modern authors that you feel would respond to your sort of treatment? Well, V.S. Naipaul is one of the, uh, we bought the rights to his novel, Mystic Massa, and uh, Carl Philip is writing a screenplay. Ishiguru is writing an original screenplay for us. So, I mean, there are, you know, obviously these are great masters, you know, and uh, Ruth Jabbala herself as a writer, you know. Um, I, I think that there is a great deal, Margaret Atwood, you know, is another wonderful writer. I mean, there are wonderful writers, you know, you just have to go, uh, and they lend a great deal to story and characters, because, you know, without that, you know, we can't move, you know. I mean, there are many, you know, what you call it, uh, bestsellers, which are written, you know, just sort of fabricated, you know, but again, with sort of greater punch and, but I think good writing, you know, can stay for thousand years, you know, million years, you know, I think there's a great, uh, Pleasure. You can read and read, you know, you can read over and over again, like it's a good film. You can see it over and over again and you're never tired, like Satyajit Ray's films, or De Sica, or Bergman, or Fellini, or, you know, I mean, uh, David Lean, you know. I mean, there are, um, it's, it's uh, John Huston, you know. I mean, I think cinema has contributed a great deal to enrich our lives. Uh, literature, of course, depends, cinema depends on literature. So that has enriched our lives. I mean, what more do we want? I mean, in this civilization, these are the two things that are there for us to enjoy and learn and, you know, and be proud of. If you were to be at the Cannes Film Festival, though, and say that cinema depends on literature, I think those who espouse the French New Wave, which created itself, wouldn't agree with you, would they? Well, I think even, even uh, you know, like Truffaut, you know, and... Uh, he went towards literature, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. absolutely did. He never sort of shied away from it, and he actually uh, admitted that without literature, you know, uh, it would not be, you know, because, you know, when a director does anything, his foundation isn't reading, you know, to know about character or his own experiences, you know. Yes. And I think unless you have that, you know, you cannot, I mean, you may pick things up from here and there, you know, or new wave cinema or all of that, but still, you know, I mean, you can sit and uh, make a scene out of, out of nothing by, you know, having very intelligent people talk about it, like at times Wally Shawn, you know, the yes. playwright, you know, he has done that. Mike uh, Lee as well. Yeah. Mike Lee mm -hmm. is a p perfect example, you know. That is there, but still, their uh, foundation is in reading, you know, whether it is uh, fiction or fact or, or plays, you know, I think that's very important. Do we have another question? There's a lady way at the back. 
<laughs> we won't go on too long because it's a little bit hot, but it's, it's a nice chance for us to uh, hear from the horse's mouth. Yes. Um, I'd be grateful to have your opinion about how sacred you consider a literature text is for filmmaking purposes in that um, obviously sometimes you are having to condense 600, 1,000 odd pages into as, you know, two hours of film. But what do you consider is most important? Is a film sufficiently different, uh, another medium whereby you can make alterations to a text, leave things out, or do you consider that the text is important and sacred in a sense? Well, if you are taking a novel, then you have to be faithful to the text or the characters that the author has created. It's like the Bostonians, you know, it's a, it's a huge book and it had to be condensed in two hours time you know, and many, many things have to be sort of connected. But the spirit of the, the writer and the dialogue and the, the characters and the storytelling, that has to be faithful. Otherwise, there is no one. Like I remember when Passage to India was made and people criticized David Lean, they said, where is Foster in this film? Well, Foster was pretty absent in the film, but he said, I'm not making Foster's novel. I'm making David Lean's Passage to India. So that's a different thing. And a, a director admitted that it is not Foster's work he's doing, but it is his vision of, of Foster's work. So that's a different thing. You know. But if you are taking, whether it is James or uh, Jean Rees or Anita Desai, or who are writers, or Ishiguru in Remains of the Dead, then you have to maintain that spirit as far as we are concerned, that is a must. The text and spirit, the characters are a must. You know? Otherwise, why do it? Then you do something else. Although I do remember in Howard's End, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, I always thought the central scene in the novel was the only connect scene that comes from the elder Shagel sister. But I don't remember seeing it in your movie. No, it was <laughs> shot. It was shot. It was shot, and it was a wonderful scene, but it did, didn't move the story forward. You just came to a, a stop and then you wanted to hear those lines only connect with the two sisters are saying to each other, you know. And he said, well, this is going to be terrible, you know, because you can't stop the story. You have to, to move on with the story.